It's 8.30 on Wednesday, October 17th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a Mississippi Public Service Commissioner is leading the first ever summit to increase the number of people of color hired by utility companies. We'll learn more. Then we'll hear from an advocate of the One Lake Project who says the plan will move forward no matter what President Trump does. Well, there is a large group of folks that don't fully understand the details and the science and engineering behind this project. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, Mississippi ACT scores aren't measuring up compared to the rest of the country. Find out why. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Public Service Commissioner Cecil Brown is spearheading a career summit to diversify utility companies in the state. Some hope to attract more African-American students to careers with utility companies. Representatives from the U.S. Department of Energy, utility companies such as Atmos Energy, and historically black colleges and universities gathered in Jackson Monday. Commissioner Brown tells MPB's Desiree Frazier how the summit began. We have this summit because as we've been working over the last three years uh, with the Public Service Commission, it's become clear that there is a gap of knowledge between the HBCUs, really all the universities, and the utility industry about the great jobs that are available in the utility industry. So we're trying to make sure that college students, uh, both black and white, know what's out there. There has been a kind of mystery around utility companies, and it's been seen in some aspects as a place like uh, one professor uh, mentioned where uh, white men go and work and are in management and it's kind of closed off from the greater population. Yeah, I don't think that's intentional uh, at all. And We have that problem with really all of the big industries in Mississippi. You know, people hire people they know, people they're comfortable with, and uh, in the white community, people they know they go to church with, people play golf with, people they sit at their restaurants. So it's, it's just easier to easier to do that. My view on this, having dealt with it for a pretty good while now, is that in order to hire minority employees, uh, people are going to have to work at it. And I don't mean it's hard work because there are plenty of great students out there. They're there. We've met them. We're going out at all the universities. But you got to go to the university camp. You got to first of all, you got to go to the campus. You got to make, and then you got to sit down with the student individually and say, "Hey, the utility industry is not just some person climbing a telephone pole. That's not the industry." We've got accountants, we've got lawyers, we've got human resource people, we've got people that drive forklifts, we've got diesel mechanics. All those jobs are available in the industry, but kids don't know about that. And the people in the uh, utility business aren't going to the, have not been going to the HBCU campuses as often as they should and working as hard as they should to identify those students. And they're really missing a big chance. I mean, 40% of the population roughly and Mississippi is African-American, and there are some great students out there, and these companies just need to say, hey, I need to look over here, as opposed to just sticking with the same old thing. Is it a part of also trying to deal with the brain drain? So many leave Mississippi after they graduate. Oh, yeah. yeah we do have a brain drain. I've got four kids, and three of them live out of state, So, and they live out of state for work. That's, that's why they left, to get jobs in other places. So, yeah, I'm, I'm well aware of it. There is a brain drain. And I think in the African-American community, too, that there are a lot of students out there that don't realize that they are great jobs. We heard this today from some of the speakers, that they don't realize there are great jobs close to home. Utility industry 
is all over Mississippi. It's all over every state. I mean, there are jobs everywhere because there are utilities everywhere. So if you want to live in Alcorn County, you want to live in Jefferson County, you you want to live over on the Gulf Coast, there's a job there. These utilities are there. The kids just need to know about that. And, and people are working on it. You heard uh, Dr. Parisi from Mississippi State talk about that today. They're trying to come up with ways to make sure kids know what jobs are available. It's a lot of work uh, to get in the door. It's a lot of work to identify kids. But once you do that, there's, got, there's a great opportunity there, both for the utilities and for the students. Well, Cecil Brown with the Public Service Commission, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. James Campos is Director of Economic Impact and Diversity at the Department of Energy. He tells our Desiree Frazier diversity is important and inevitable in the industry. It's the first of its kind here in Mississippi, and it's, it's very important to be involved. It's very important for the department to be involved with this, to understand Mississippi better, to understand the needs of the state, and to also progress in, in, a, in a better way forward because this is diversity is a very important part of our country. It's a very important key to the future. It's a national security issue, so it was imperative for the DOE to be here. What can you do to move this process along? It's really just awareness. It's providing the proper awareness to uh, the greater stakeholders, both uh, internal and external, and providing us the information, what we need to know, how to proceed forward. Can you apply uh, polite pressure to utility companies? I think it's, it's polite awareness. Uh, I believe that's, that's enough of, of a... Uh, of a measure to go forward, but I think utility uh, companies and organizations understand the need of the future and understand the realities, and I believe they're coming along along just as well. What are the realities? Realities is a character change in our country. It's a need to, to maintain uh, energy dominance in our country. We need to include everyone. Uh, it's a growing population. It's a growing older population. We need to fill those positions. And the fastest growing segment of our economy in terms of population and in terms of entrepreneurialism are the minority sectors. Someone mentioned that it will mean the survival of utility companies. It would mean uh, absolutely. It's, it's a change in demographic. Uh, in the year 2020, K through 12, majority minority uh, population in our country, 2044, the estimate is a majority minority uh, country in general speaking. So it's, it's, it's essential that we have everyone included in this mix because we have to maintain our energy dominance and our competitiveness, utilities across the board, just with, within each other. So it, it's, it's imperative that we do contribute and we do progress and we do make aware the need to include everyone in our economy. How do you handle resistance? I don't think there's going to be much resistance, to be honest with you, because it's a necessity. It's, it's, it's a reality. There, there needs to be positions that are going to be, or there's going to be opening positions, and there's going to be no one to fill them unless we include all sectors of the economy. So I don't believe, believe there will be any resistance. I believe this is going to be an uh, ongoing process in which we fill positions, and the sooner we realize to outreach to other segments of our economy, other segments of our populations, the faster and better we'll be prepared for the future. Department of Energy Diversity Director James Campos with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Mississippi's 2nd District Congressman Benny Thompson says Mississippi has a great pool of potential candidates, but companies will have to put forth effort. Uh, let's see how we can elevate our community. Uh, and, and companies don't get creative and give people titles with no authority. If you're looking for qualified people... You can find them. All our institutions are very, very good. But you have to look at your workforce and say, now, does my workforce really reflect 
Mississippi, or do I have some work to do? And that kind of work is challenging uh, because some of your golfing partners, some of your other relationships will be questioned if you do that. But, you know, you operate public utilities. You don't operate private utilities. So it's a public effort that you support. Second District Congressman Benny Thompson. Coming up, we'll hear from an advocate of the One Lake Project who says the plan will move forward no matter what President Trump does. And as always, let us know what you think about a story or send us a news tip by visiting MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson, inviting you to join us right here on MPB for Friday Night Under the Lights. We'll get you all the scores and keep you up to date on all the players at 10 p.m. every Friday night this fall. Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Friday Night Under the Lights. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A Mississippi attorney involved in a controversial flood prevention plan says a federal law won't stop the proposal. State environmental groups say a bill President Donald Trump is expected to sign includes more scrutiny of projects like One Lake. The proposal would dredge the Pearl River near Jackson and include real estate development. Opponents say it's bad for the environment. Attorney Keith Turner represents the plan's sponsors, the Rankin-Hines Pearl River Flood and Drainage Control District. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier claims that the legislation will prevent the project are not accurate. The language that you're referring to uh, in what was the Water Resources Development Act and became, I think, the America's Water Infrastructure Act uh, is actually the same requirements that existed prior to. They clarified and just kind of restated existing uh, obligations of the project. They haven't created any new hurdles or any new additional obstacles for us. It's the same conditions for approval that existed before. The purpose of the language was to help clarify some pre-design and construction processes that needed to be addressed, and that was the actual purpose. The um, Louisiana uh, congressional delegation got involved and, and tried to satisfy their constituents' concerns, but all it really did is restate what was already in existing uh, in, the, in the obligations that the project had. This project is getting a lot of pushback from folks who feel like it's going to negatively impact the environment and contaminate waterways. How do you speak to those concerns? Well, there is a large group of folks that don't fully understand the details and the science and engineering behind this project, and our job is to get that message out, and we're continuing to do that. Uh, We're continuing to provide and and edit and revise the documents so that folks will maybe better understand exactly the project, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's there's some environmental groups that have intentionally uh, uh, tried to raise uh, concerns by both public elected officials and private sectors and property owners and things and industry uh, without any real sound science, engineering, and facts. They, they've, they've presented misinformation to try to get folks upset about it and oppose the project. Um, so, you know, there is a lot of misunderstanding of, of what exactly what the project is all about, particularly downstream below the, the you know, on the lower pearl. There's concern about dredging and damming and the dredging bringing up materials that have been settled for years that may involve uh, unlicensed landfills and other things that might uh, pose health concerns. Is that true? 
Well, you, you mentioned two words. You said damming and dredging. And, and to speak to the first one as far as damming, there's already an existing weir or a dam already located in the project area. What we're doing is actually relocating it downstream. So there isn't any new dam to be constructed. It's a weir, which is much different than a dam anyway. It allows the water that comes into the area to flow out. There's not a control gate to stop it like the Ross Barnett Reservoir. In regards to the dredging question and potential contaminates, there's actually existing concerns already with the sites that during high waters, there are contaminants that leach into the Pearl River from these uh, these sites right now. And our project is going to be designed to actually remediate those sites and, and eliminate the leaching that occurs right now. Just briefly describe what this project is going to do. The purpose of the project is to, to uh, you know, reduce the flood risks associated with the Pearl River during 100-year and 500-year flood events. And it, through that, we're using kind of an innovative approach of, of trying to uh, widen and deepen and, and improve the flow conveyance and capacity of the Pearl River around Jackson. We have we have we're restricted in the sense that there's there's you know only available certain available land to do this, and you know we're also working in an area that's been heavily impacted by the Corps of Engineers' prior projects with the levees that exist there. So we're having to combine a flood control project that that works within these restrictions, but also you know provides uh, you know some benefits to the to the area as well. What will be the benefits? What will be the benefits? Well, the biggest benefit is the flood risk reduction. I mean, people that flooded in 79 flood will not have water in their homes like they used to. Downtown Jackson that flooded in the 79 flood won't, won't flood. Lakeland Drive won't go underwater. I-55 that was closed for several days during the 79 flood will not have to be closed. It will not close anymore. So there'll be tremendous amounts of flood risk. In addition to the flood risk, of course, is a is, is, uh, potential economic and recreation benefits. There'll be opportunities. Folks can't get to the Pearl River right now. You, if you're a, a private citizen and want to get to the Pearl, there's only one location, one park, and that's it. You can't, you can't get to uh, a, a much of the area of the Pearl because it's owned by private, private property owners. And if you put a boat in, you can't go very far because of the weir or dam I mentioned earlier. So there'll be recreational benefits. And there are some small areas that are going to be allowed for economic development that will improve both the Hines County and Rankin County side as far as stimulating some, some economic development. So there's a combination of things, but flood well, risk reduction is the key one. Will there be real estate development? Those those areas I said for economic development, there are some small areas for real estate development that will be allowed. They'll be done on both the Rankin and Hines County side, and they're not the driving force of this project. They're it's you know ancillary benefit. It's not the primary purpose of the project. So, do you see any risk involved in this project at all? I don't know what you mean. Any risk is a pretty broad statement. Uh, I mean, you know, by doing nothing at all, there's a risk. And that's the biggest concern is that if we don't get something done here, we've been very fortunate that we haven't had any floods, but we've come close. As, as recently as 2014, we had a very high river, a flood river stage, and we had an enormous rain event coming that the engineers tell us if it actually hit the way the, the NOAA weather predictors thought it would, we would have had a flood worse than 79. And that was just a few years ago. Fortunately, the rainstorm ended up splitting and it ended up diversifying, and so the water was spread. But, uh, I mean, it, it would have been worse than 79. So the risk is not doing anything at all. Can there be a project put together that would allay the fears of environmental groups and still handle the flooding issue without having this divide over uh, this current project 
proposal? Well, I think you have, to, you have to separate out the different concerns because, you know, the environmentalists are not going to be happy with anything. I mean, that's, their general approach is that they don't want anything built. That's the way they, they tend to be on projects. But, but there's a lot of other folks that are concerned that aren't necessarily environmental-related groups. I mean, there's downstream people that are concerned about flow and water quality, industries that are concerned. And I guess I think once uh, they see our, our further analysis and our further explanations, I think they'll understand that there isn't a concern downstream for folks on those issues. I think we can get them to be comfortable with this project and not see that as something that they have to worry about. Attorney Keith Turner, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers will determine the fate of the project. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, Mississippi ACT scores aren't measuring up compared to the rest of the country. Find out why. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I've got warts, and I wanted to know, is there anything other than freezing them off and then keeping them covered that can be done? All warts are caused by a viral infection. The most common one are the plain or flat warts that you find, and you can find those most commonly on the hands or feet. There's not really a way to prevent those on the body, per se, that you just sort of have to treat those. Most of the time, if you do something to that wart surface, what you're doing is you're getting rid of that tissue, but you're also stimulating the immune system in that area to put up a fight against those viral particles there. It's going to be one of those things that you just, when they pop up, you deal with them. But the dermatologists are the experts on that. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy, live blue. It's good to be blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More Mississippi students are meeting benchmarks for college and career readiness on the ACT. Today, researchers with the ACT are releasing annual national and state score reports for the 2018 U.S. high school graduating class. Subject area exams include English, mathematics, reading, and science. The data also show Mississippians with an average score of 18.6, which is below the national average of 20.8. Scott Montgomery is senior vice president for state and federal programs with the ACT. We asked him if Mississippi students are ready for college. He shares his thoughts. I think your Mississippi students who've taken the ACT, there's a a core of them who are ready, and there are some who probably still have work to do. 12% of Mississippi graduates met all four ACT college readiness benchmarks. How can that be improved I don't want to speak for Mississippi, right? So I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll caveat that. Uh, but, but the report actually has a number of recommendations that I think policymakers in every state need to start seriously considering, right? That, that's, we have to provide resources for students, primarily, I mean, all students, but I would, I would suggest underserved students even more so. We have to give educators the resources to be able to help improve outcomes, I don't know what those are specifically in Mississippi. Uh, I don't know if that's additional teachers or uh, additional teachers to reduce classroom size. I don't know if that's uh, additional resources in curriculum to better support the learning standards of your state. I, I'm, I, I can't speak to the specifics of Mississippi, but but I will say that I think that for too long, 
um, we as a society, and I was thinking about this too, back in 1983, you know, with A Nation at Risk, we identified a whole host of things that educators and the system needed to do. And I, I don't know if we've, we've fully realized uh, the extent of what we need to do, right? We, we put in high standards, we put in assessments that measure. I think we have to really start thinking about how we provide resources for curriculum, resources for, for teachers to identify early interventions, um, and we really have to get to the learning component that goes along with standards and assessment. I mean, ACT can, can, can provide you the data about how students are performing, but, but where the rubber hits the road is in the classroom where we have to give teachers the actual resources to be able to do their job. Scott, what are the four college readiness benchmarks? Yeah, the four college readiness benchmarks that we report are in English, math, reading, and science. So, you know, in terms of, of overall benchmark scores, I think students were within a range of, you know, 0.1, 0.2 of where they probably had been in the past. And we know that different cohorts of students, you know, sometimes the, the score may go up 0.1 or down 0.1 or somewhere in that, in that neighborhood. So it, I, I would say that, that the average uh, in Mississippi has been relatively flat um, and that, you know, with only 12% of the kids meeting that benchmark, uh, we got to find ways to do better to raise kids to the the to all of them, or at least a good significant chunk of them meeting the benchmark. Your data shows that if a student takes the ACT more than once, they're more likely to have a higher score. How do you account for that? There's a couple of things, right? I mean, there's there's a depends on when the student takes it. I mean, they may take it at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year. There may be additional learning that's taken place. Uh, they may just simply be more familiar and more comfortable with the test than they were the first time, and so it's less intimidating or, or less um, of, a, of a challenge. They know the setting. So there's a lot of different things that go, go into that. But there's, uh, from, a sci- from, a, from a research perspective, I don't think there's a specific of why students go up. They may have prepped, right? They may have taken it the first time and said, wow, that, that math section was hard. i got to work harder on, on the math that I'm taking. So I think there's a variety of reasons why we see it increase, um, you know, for students who take it a second time. Almost 25% of eligible students didn't take advantage of the ACT fee waivers. What are those and how can more students find out about those yeah, options? I, yeah, so fee waivers, ACT provides fee waivers to students who meet uh, the qualifications um, of an underserved student. Um, so that's primarily they, you know, uh, free and reduced lunch uh, and a few other factors that, that would allow for them to take a fee waiver, which would provide them opportunity to take the, the ACT test for free. Um, across the board, not just in Mississippi, but across the board, we see students who don't take advantage of that fee waiver. And there's, you know, I, I, I don't know why uh, students don't take advantage of the fee waiver. I do think that there's ways that that, that the schools um, count. I think every school is probably different, right? And, I, and so I don't want this to sound like I'm like there's a, a negative here, um, but some schools do a really good job of, of announcing to their students that, you know, there are fee waivers available. If you want to take the ACT, uh, but you don't think you can afford it, come see the counselor's office. We have, we have availability, right? There's, there's lots of things, I think, that local districts and individual schools do to get that word out. And I, and I think maybe even we at ACT should probably be a little bit more uh, proactive in reaching all schools and say, here are the messages that you can deliver to your students uh, so that they understand how to use this fee waiver, what the, what the requirements are to use the fee waiver, and how to make sure you sign up for the test. 
Um, but I think we have to figure out ways in which we collectively are working together to say there are opportunities. If you want to take the test, if you want to go to college, there are ways in which we can help you do that. Scott Montgomery is the Senior Vice President for State and Federal Programs. Scott, thank you very much. Happy to do it. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB public media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is 